Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. Thank you so much, Bart and Praise team. Again, if you're a guest, a word of welcome to you, and if you have your Bible, would invite you to open with me to the book of Malachi, and we are going to be closing uh, this book together. And so while we are coming to a close, it's worth noting that Malachi is not on autopilot. Uh, he is not coasting in for a smooth landing, if you will. Instead, he finishes his message with a strong word of rebuke and a call to repentance and a call of deep self-examination from the people. Just a question by way of beginning this morning, are you an optimistic person or are you a pessimistic person? Do you tend to see the best in situations or do you tend to see the worst? When life happens, do you think in terms of the worst case scenario or in the best case scenario? Are you someone that sees the glass half empty or someone that sees the glass half full? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I will say that I am typically someone that views the glass half empty. I tend to blame myself. I tend to think the worst, that the worst is likely going to happen. And while that's not maybe a relevant question that we often ponder day to day, our response is often seen in the way that we live out our lives and typically in our attitudes. But just circumstantially, we all want things to pan out in our favor. We're all rooting for ourselves. We're all desiring that breaks would come our way or fall in a positive direction. Life, after all, is hard and a break would be nice every now and then. Yet what about when life seems to be turned on its head? And what if nothing that you thought should come your way ever ends up going your way? What if, despite your best efforts, you can't seem to catch a break? What if the things in which you thought were promised to you, maybe even you felt were owed to you, didn't pan out the way that you thought they would or that you hoped they would? or maybe in the way that you thought you deserved that they should. Rest assured that that will often elicit a response from us, and it's often seen in the spiritual nature that we live our lives, and it's often demonstrated and reveals our spiritual maturity. In those moments, how do you respond? It's often in those moments that we see our true intention and we see our true motive of our heart. Is our heart motivated by trusting the Lord at all times, or is it one that deep down is very slow to trust God and is really doubting God and honestly is demanding of the Lord, believing that He really owes you something or that you have things that God ought to give to you? We could say it in this way, when life hits us hard, when trials come, that our faith is tested, it exposes our true nature of our heart and of our faith. Have I done good for no good reason? Is all of this even really worth it? Why is this not panning out the way that I thought it should? It was the same testing that 
Satan tested Job and desired him to get caught up in this type of thinking. And we know that Job, though he questioned, James tells us that his faith, though it was tested and tried, he would be one who is steadfast and one who's genuinely a person of faith. That could be contrasted in many ways, but consider it contrasted over against the elder brother in Luke 15 of a man who had two sons, one older, one younger. And when this older son had his lot in life that he didn't pan out like he thought it should have, he doesn't rejoice at the homecoming of his brother. Instead, he is concerned with his own unmet expectations. And he says to his father of his rebellious brother that comes home, you'll just throw a party for anyone. And when this sinner brother of mine comes home, in other words, he didn't deserve it. I did. Yet you would kill the fattened calf for him. What about me? And the posture of his heart is that something was owed to him. You could say the same response could be seen in that of the Pharisees in the Gospels. But it's also seen in many of the people of Israel in the day of Malachi when we come to the end of this book. They're not grateful. They're not dependent on the Lord. They're not faith-filled. But instead, they are cynical, they are doubting, and you see that their hearts are corrupted. And their hearts are seen, and one day, beloved, they will be fully exposed. And that is the burden of this text this morning. And so I'd invite you to stand as we read a quite lengthy passage of Scripture, Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13, all the way through the end of this book, chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord through Malachi. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my, of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearers of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe that, would you say amen? You may be seated. 
What's difficult in expositing a text like this is that it requires an anticipation of God's coming judgment. That's something that's often concealed in the Scripture, and even the best of us, when we read it, it's still surrounded in a lot of mystery because it's not going to be fully revealed until the last days. Nevertheless, what is a clear message in this Scripture is the devastation that awaits the unbeliever and the deliverance that awaits for the believer. In other words, God's glory will be seen and manifested in that great and final day and will be on display in at least two ways. You will see God's justice in that the judgment of the wicked. In other words, the wicked are going to be judged. But you also see God's glory on display in the mercy that he is bestowing upon his elect. Or you could say it another way, God will bring forth cursing to those who lack faith and have demonstrated that lack of faith through their works. They have only proven their wickedness and they will receive their righteous reward, namely all the curses of the covenant and eventually death they will receive God's eternal wrath. But for those who have been redeemed by the Lord, they will receive, as the faithful, obedient children of God, they will receive all the covenant promises, namely that of eternal life with God. It could be expressed in other ways as well, of those who trust in themselves and those who trust in the Lord. Those who live by faith or those who live in the flesh. Those who live in the pride of their own accomplishments, or who live in humble gospel humility. Those that live in a way that is fleshly and carnal are those that live in the ways of God. And the distinction between these two are crystal clear, and it's often subtle for us to see, but often it's demonstrated by our posture and our hearts and even the words that we say. Of the righteous Pharisee would say, Lord, I know that I'm right. But the righteous believer in humility would say, Lord, I know that you are right in all of your ways. I want you to see a few points this morning. First, I want you to see God's faithful remnant. In verses 13 through 18, what you notice is that there are two groups in this text. The first group, and we can call them make-believers. Their words in verse 13, they are hard against the Lord. Literally, they have a strong word against Yahweh. And God comes with a command, and instead of obeying that command, they want to take shots at Him. They want to justify why they are right in their own eyes. He just doesn't understand. Time and time again, as we've gone through the book of Malachi, have you noticed this sequence that takes place often? Namely, that God says, and then there's a rebuttal from the audience. But you have said... God says, but you have said every time they question God and they seek to blame him. The language here is speaking without any regard to the things that God has said. You could say that they were content in their own way, that they had it all figured out with their experience through their trials and their areas and their errors. Who was God to speak to them? Do you see their pride? And they're categorized by what they say. It wasn't a heart of love for God, but instead they blamed Him. And they revealed their disdain and their disgust and their faithlessness against the Lord. Look at verse 14. 
You have said it is vain or it's useless, it's futile to serve God. What profit is there in keeping his charge? In other words, they think God owes them something. Let me ask you a question. Have they really been obeying God in the book of Malachi? No, of course not. In vain, they say, we've done this, or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Here they are, they're saying we're putting on these dark clothes, these sackcloths and ashes, they're putting on this show of religiosity, and they're going through the motions, and then they go through the motions and they just say, see, it doesn't work. It's vain to serve God. It's vain to pray. It's vain to do these things. It's not working. Why haven't you done anything? Why is this not working out like I thought it should? God, you must not care. Give me what I deserve. I mean, even the wicked are treated better than us. They had a posture and a disposition to say to God, God, I know that I'm right. And God, you owe me. Why aren't you coming through for me? And these were a people who appeared to have faith superficially, but inwardly they were faithless. There was no substance. They weren't near to the Lord or near to His Word or His will. They were all about self. They were not about God. They were make-believers. It's contrasted then by the righteous believers in verse 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. In other words, they feared God. And like the believers, the, the make believers, they too conversed amongst themselves. But it, they weren't categorized by what they said, but rather of what was said of them. Namely, that they were a people of faith. They were a people that feared the, the Lord. They had a fear of God in which they would honor His name. They would give credit to Him, not to themselves. They were fully dependent upon the Lord. And this was a people of true faith. How many of them, we don't know. But nonetheless, it was a remnant who when everyone else was looking to themselves and disobeying God, they would be a people of true faith who feared the Lord and esteemed His name, verse 16. But moreover, did you notice, the Lord paid attention and heard them. We could say it this way, the Lord knows the cry of His people, and He is attentive to them. And notice what it says of them in verse 17, that they truly belong to the Lord. They are His treasured possession, and they will be rescued by the Lord when trouble comes. It continues in verse 18, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. The Lord, it says in verse 18, makes a distinction between those who are His true children and who are not. In fact, one of the burdens of this text in primary points is that the Lord makes a true and righteous judgment of a person's heart and a person's faith. And the word here for distinction means to examine, it means to inspect, it means to demonstrate what is true and finally will be revealed. It will all be the more evident when the Lord makes a distinction in the same way in the past the Lord has made a distinction in Exodus 11 between the land of Egypt and the people of Israel. In the same way that the Lord has made a distinction between Jacob and Esau, one brother of faith and one of faithlessness, one child of the promise, and one not. In the same way, the Lord made a distinction between Cain 
and Abel. One bringing forth the line of Lamech, which led to an adulterous and violent people, and one bringing forth Seth and Enoch, who walked with God. And this is not some works-based salvation. Instead, it's quite the opposite. It is, in fact, God uncovering and revealing true faith of those who love Him and follow Him, and for those who do not. Those who have been redeemed, and those who give a superficial appearance of faith. Yet one day, the truth of this text is that the Lord, who is the searcher of the heart, will make it all abundantly clear because He Himself makes a distinction of those who belong to Him and those who do not. Or as we say in the text this morning, between those who serve God, that is the righteous, and those who do not, that is the wicked. And this text continues to unpack this a little bit further as we'll see. Point number two, God's great and final day. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls, and you shall tread down the wicked For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And while there is certainly a great deal of mystery of that coming final day of the Lord, yet what we see in this text is just what we said before, and we'll say it again, that the Lord knows who belong to Him. The Lord is the searcher of the heart, and He knows who His children are and nothing will be hidden from him, and nothing will not be revealed in that final day. God is a God who judges rightly. And his glory will be revealed not only through the judgment of the wicked, but also in the mercy and salvation that he gives fully to his people. Those who are evil and arrogant, the first group of people, are categorized of people that live in their own pride and live in their own flesh. And this text says that they will be stubble. They'll be like chaff or straw that burns up so quickly. They'll be consumed in God's final judgment, burning like an oven where heat is not dissipated, but is contained fully in its all-consuming place in a space in which no one can escape from that heat. In this day, the day of the Lord's judgment, evildoers will receive their justice and the arrogant will be brought low and they will be utterly destroyed and neither root or branch will be left. This is the anticipation of the second coming so often depicted in the New Testament. In passages like 1 Corinthians 5 or 1 Thessalonians 5 or Matthew 7 or 1 Corinthians 6 or 2 Thessalonians 2, of this great and coming final day that ought to sober everyone because we will all give an account to the Lord. And all of our deeds, whether righteous or wicked, will be exposed. And this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Here it is, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And this should stand as a great warning for those who practice evil, who speak evil against the Lord, and who walk not according to the Word of God, but instead abandon faith, and instead walk in their own pride, that one day God will come and He will bring forth judgment, and He will expose them as wicked, and He will give them their righteous reward. But that is not all that will take place on that day, beloved. For Malachi speaks of two types of heat. One that brings forth judgment, and the other is one that brings forth comfort and mercy. Note in Malachi 4.2, the second group of people. But for those who fear my name. Malachi makes it clear. He's speaking of these two groups and contrasting of them. These make-believers will receive judgment And yet the true believers, here is the type of heat that they will receive. The son of righteousness. The son of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves in the stall. He's alluding back to Isaiah 60. He's alluding to Zechariah's words spoken of John the Baptist in Luke 1. 78, speaking of this freedom and delight that God's people can long and anticipate of the Lord's promises coming to you. He continues in verse 3 and further in this promise and see this great reversal of sorts and where it comes full circle of the complaints of the faithless one. Look at verse 4-3. And you, that is you who fear my name, shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Whereas the make-believers echoed their evil and prosperity and their arrogance, and they would say, I mean, what's the point? I wish you would come and you would put it into this, God. Why aren't you doing anything about this in the world? And yet they have no faith. The Lord says, I will deal with them. And their works will be displayed as faithless and false. And then those of faith, that regardless of their circumstances, they would see the wicked and it seemed like they're prospering. And they see evil as repent and they feel like, God, I'm going to be crushed. But God, I know that even though I feel like I'm about to be consumed, I know that you are faithful. And I know that you can deliver me. And did you note their fate even in verse 3? that they are waiting on the day when the Lord acts on their behalf. That I'm not going to force the issue. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to abandon faith altogether. No, instead, I am going to wait patiently on the Lord for Him to deliver me. They are looking to the Lord in faith. And on that day, a great reversal takes place. To those that feel like God owed them, they will receive their reward. And for those who look to what is promised, 
they too will receive what they have waited for with great patience all of their life. And so Paul says in Romans 2, he will render to each according to each one's worth work to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be fury and wrath. And beloved, on that day, there will be certainly many who are greatly surprised at the judgment that is received. To which Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 24, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that is not a passage that should bring about great doubt, but it is a passage that should cause us to consider our ways and consider our walk and consider our way before the Lord and consider, do we exemplify a life that demonstrates fruit, fruit in Christ to say that I am showing that I have truly been born again, that I have dependency upon Christ and I see that my righteousness is from Him. Do I love him or do I just demand that I receive something from him? Do I love his word? Do I love his people? Or do I just love the comfort that he can give to me? That we ought to examine our lives, not in a superficial way, but deep down consider our own heart to say, have I been transformed by the Lord? Or do I just merely put on a superficial form of godliness? Are you repentant or are you spiritually independent, filled with superficial religion? The Lord knows who He is. And the interesting thing about Israel and Malachi's day, nearly everyone would have said, of course the Lord knows who are His. We belong to Him, so go tell this message to the pagans. Go tell them to straighten up or God's going to judge them. But we, Israel, we are the people of promise. We are Israel. We are the offspring of Abraham. And then the Lord Jesus comes in the flesh and he was hated by his own people. They didn't love him. They crucified him. They rejected the Christ and they stumbled over Him and will be judged accordingly. But even there, a remnant remains. Even among Israel, a true faithful remnant, namely those of faith who trust the Lord, those who look to Christ for salvation, and so Malachi shows us time and time again that the Lord makes a distinction. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. God says, I am the God of a faithful remnant. Even in Israel, those who are of true faith, those who are a true remnant devoted 
to God, not those of the flesh, but those of faith in Christ. The book of Malachi has a what's called a chiastic structure, and that begins in two ends, and it kind of crescendos, and then it comes back down, in, in which the end and the beginning almost mirror one another. And if you remember in looking at Malachi chapter 1 and the explosion that Malachi begins, we looked at this chapter in Romans 9, you can go and be turning there, of Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And it's necessary for us to look at this passage again of how God preserves a faithful remnant unto himself. Look at verses Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. And we'll just highlight very quickly through Romans 11. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Watch verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Paul continues in Romans 10, But of Israel, he says, verse 21, All the day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, Israel is faithless. And notice what it ushers into in Romans chapter 11. I ask then, do you see the heading in your Bible? Does it say something to the effect, the remnant of Israel? God has a remnant even amongst Israel. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars, and I am left alone. And they seek my life. But the, what does God reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who do not bow the knee to Baal. So too at the present time then, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, yet the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That the Lord makes a distinction among Israel and those that are of true faith and those that are just of the flesh. Those that are of the flesh and those that are children of the promise. And in the same way, God grafts in by faith even from among the Gentiles. That's part of his point in Romans 11. He grafts in even from the Gentiles a remnant, a people of faith, a true spiritual Israel. 
From among every nation, tribe, and tongue, a distinction is made between true believers and the rest of the world. That is, a people of faith who trust the Lord and has been redeemed by Christ. But it matters not about the flesh. It matters about our faith. And Israel in Malachi's day would have looked at one another and they would have said, we're good. Why are you saying this to us? We're card-carrying members of the covenant. When their lives showed that they were not a true people of faith, they were a people of carnality and a people of the flesh. But they would say, well, we come to worship in God's temple. We offer the prescribed sacrifices. And in some cases, it was even the priests and the Levites that would try to give their religious disposition from the Lord. Beloved, the same fault line falls throughout humanity. A dividing of the people, of those who are truly of the people of God and those who are not. Those who fear God and those who have hard words for Him. Those who are righteous and those who are wicked. The same is true even in churches today. People who attend church regularly, who give, and, and people who, who keep many rules and statutes and They don't do it in light of the gospel, though. They do it in light of legalism. And they think that they can somehow earn God's good graces in their own power. They're outstanding members of the religious community, perhaps even pastors and deacons. And nonetheless, they're outsiders to God. And they would look at a text like this and they would say, well, I'm good. I do. I give. I got my name on the list. I pray. I sing. I do what I'm supposed to do. You just lack one thing, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And the firefighters come, and their faith is tested, and what is shown is that their faith is actually lacking. And they feel God owes them something. They only wanted gifts from God, not His person. They only wanted what was they felt was owed to them. They prayed to be in God's good graces, but they refused to remain in God's presence. God better not short-circuit them, lest they see God's grace going to someone else and they are jealous. Do you display the fruit of the heart of a person that's been changed? Do you display the humility and fellowship of Jesus when life is difficult And when your humility is needed, do you respond in humble faith or do you respond in pride? When repentance is the answer, do you instead bow down in your own resentment instead? Or is your heart softened towards the Lord? Or is it closed-fisted and stubborn toward Him and His Word? Do you love His Word? Do you cherish His Word? Do you hide His Word in in your heart? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Beloved, what does the fruit of your life reveal about your true nature? That you have faith? Or that really you're one of faithlessness? And all of it concludes as we come to a close this morning. Point number three, God's final warning. The dialogues and disputes are over. And Malachi brings his message to a conclusion with twofold, a twofold piece of advice. And it centers around two primary figures in the past, namely Moses and Elijah. 
And they represent really the great divisions of the Old Testament, namely the law and the prophets. And together, Malachi is showing to the people that if you are to avoid other destruction, that their lack of fidelity must be dealt with before the day of the Lord comes. And in the same way, God is calling those who are content in their rebellion to be considerate of their ways and to repent and to come to Him in true gospel humility, that they may see their need for a Savior, that they may repent of their sin and trust in the Lord. God is still transforming the heart of the rebel. He is still bringing in aliens and strangers into His forever family by grace. And so Malachi says in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, in giving of the law for all of Israel. That they are to live and to respond as a people of faith and life to be lived in obedience under that covenant. And they are to remember, Malachi says, remember the statutes and the rules that God has given them and to submit their lives to the Lord through that rather than rebelling against Him. To recognize, to see that God, your way is right and I'm not going to buff up in pride. I'm going to submit in humility and follow your commands. They would live under the commands and statutes that God had given them. They are to remember the law, but secondly, they are to anticipate God's vindication. Verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. To know that God will act on behalf of his people. Of this is pointing of God's sending of a frontrunner, namely John the Baptist who comes preaching a gospel of repentance, turning the hearts of the people toward their fathers, warning them of the kingdom of God that is to come and is at hand, turning many prodigals back to their father. And in the gospel of Mark, we see John the Baptist, and he is depicted to be in the promised Elijah's trademark clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt in 2 Kings 1 verse 8. And he's eating locusts and wild honey coming from the wilderness, and he's preaching these fiery sermons in Mark 1, 6-8. And most of Israel, even hearing the call of John the Baptist to repent, the kingdom of God is near, they failed to listen to him. In the same way that they would fail to listen to the prophets before him, they would fail to listen to John the Baptist, and their hearts would be hardened. They wouldn't listen to John the Baptist any more than they would listen to the crawl of Malachi. And then a little child comes into the world. Son of God, son of man. It didn't seem like a fiery judgment at all. You see Jesus and he's transfigured before his disciples. And he's standing on the mount with his disciples and who is standing with him at the, at the transfiguration, do you remember? Moses and Elijah. The same people that are depicted here in Malachi's writing. It was a reminder of God's great Old Testament figures and certainly a reminder of Malachi's writings. Pointing us to this reality that there is a new and better exodus coming through Christ. And then you see the truth of the gospel. Don't miss this. That Jesus himself experiences his own personal day of judgment. And at the cross, 
the words of Malachi 3, 13 through 4, verse 6, from our text today, have a peculiar twist, don't they? Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who fully obeyed the commands of God, And while we sin, Jesus lived a life completely devoted to purity, and he had all of faith. And it was Jesus, this man full of purity, full of life, full of faith. It was him that was mocked and ridiculed and insulted. He was a king, and he was treated as worthless and despised, and he was rejected by all men, even his own people. The crowd shouting and mocking at him. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from there. Naked, exposed for the world to see. He was crucified on a cross of wood on a hill called Calvary. And one may be tempted to say, as it appeared on that day, (laughs) it's vain. It's vain to serve God. What what profit is there in keeping God's word? That's all he ever did. What profit is there in praying? We saw him arise early in the morning to go and be with his father. And this is what he gets. What profit is there in walking in the morning? What's the point of doing all of this? That's what, that's what he gets for being obedient to God? Crucified? And at the cross, the arrogant seem to prosper. And the righteous is the one that seems to be forsaken. And the crowd left. And they go and enjoy dinner with their family. Meanwhile, Christ is put to death outside the camp. Does God not have compassion for His only Son? Evildoers put God to the test, and it seems like they win. God, are you going to deliver your Son? Are you going to bring fiery judgment on your enemies? Where's justice on that day? Where's the God of justice and the God of goodness on that day? Jesus was living out Malachi's words. And it's in that reality, beloved, that we realize that we are the unrighteous ones. We are the make-believers. We are the ones that are desperately in need of God's mercy and grace. And the beauty of the gospel is that Christ took upon the very wrath of God that was intended for us. And the harsh words that we spoke against God were placed upon Jesus. And God's wrath for our sin was placed upon His Son, who is our Savior. The reality is that none of us deserve God's love and His grace. We are the rebels. We are the revilers. We are the faithless ones. We are the outcasts. And the only hope we have in not receiving God's judgment is that Jesus be judged in our place and we be forgiven. 
And that is the only way that the Son of Righteousness may rise even upon sinners and that Jesus is being consumed on our behalf. And so we live in light of this great gospel who have been redeemed by Christ and the gracious call of God to His people to live in faith. That true believers would live in accordance to God and His Word. That our hearts would be spurred to the things of Christ. That our lives would be marked by a posture of repentance and faith and an anticipation of His coming final day and upon His return. And then the Lord will fully and finally judge the earth and He will make every wrong right. And beloved, if it feels delayed, know that the Lord will not forget. The people of Israel wait 400 years from these words of Malachi in silence, waiting on the first advent. And then the Lord comes and He makes a clear distinction between those of faith and those of the flesh. And in the same way, the Lord will make a distinction on that great and final day when He comes. And He will say, And He will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the righteous from the unrighteous, and those who are truly of Christ and those who are not. So then we, as the redeemed people of God, are to live faithful lives unto the Lord, to proclaim His gospel that He is our hope in everything, to remember and encourage one another and anticipate His coming, to keep the faith and continue in the faith, to keep in fruit bearing with repentance. Beloved, are you walking in faith this morning? Does your heart reveal that you truly know the Lord or are you a make-believer? Or have you been transformed by His gospel, wrought to life by His Holy Spirit, that you have been born again and you are living now in light of a coming King. That ought to cause us to pause and to consider our life and our way to say, am I truly walking in a disposition of faith? Am I living in the flesh? Am I living by faith? Will I be condemned on that day and judged? or I'll receive all the covenant promises through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church podcast.